Hi men, I'm beginning to feel a little bit like the U.S. Postal Service, that neither rain nor sleet nor snow nor hail shall keep these appointed servants from their daily tasks. Amen Bible study is not going to give up for a little snow. Certainly it wouldn't have under Sandy, it's not under George, and so we're going to get this done despite uh, weather like we haven't had in a while. And I'm so glad we will because Sermon on the Mount is one of my very favorite passages of all of Scripture. We don't look at all of it today, but when you look at the last part of it today, you all have already studied the first part, and for that I am grateful. I want to set it into a context, however, that we might be able um, to make sure that we don't make a big mistake that we often make when we turn to the Sermon on the Mount. And so, I want to remind you, of, in the context of Matthew's Gospel, that the very key verse is the very first verse, uh, a record of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that the key vantage point of the writer of Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, is that Jesus is the son of David. He is royal David's royal son. He is great David's even greater son. He is the one promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, whose kingdom will never, ever end. So this royal figure dominates Matthew's gospel. In addition, we can say that what we're looking at here in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus propounding what James calls the royal law. He is giving the behaviors for his followers and why. That's really, really important that we see that. So James in James 2.8 calls Jesus' teachings the royal law. He is the king. He is the great lawgiver. He will give it to us. But remember, remember, and never forget that these who are hearing this sermon were already disciples before they received this instruction. Being a disciple of Jesus is making a trust commitment to him that I'll follow him anywhere. And then he tells us where that anywhere is, what that anything is that he wants us to do. But we're already disciples before we come to these behaviors. This is not legalism. This is not earning your way to heaven. This is a choice to throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus in order to find out, or not to find out anything at that point, throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus just to be saved. And then we throw ourselves on his mercy and we follow him wherever he may lead. They will follow him anywhere, these disciples, because he alone has the words of eternal life, as he told Peter so clearly in John chapter 6. Where else can we go? We're going to follow you. You have the words of eternal life. When Jesus saw the crowds, we're told at the beginning of this sermon, he went up on a mountain and to a quiet place, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You who follow me, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I want you to be among these people who recognize their poverty of spirit. You have nothing to bring to contribute to your salvation. You are dependent on my mercy and on my death on the cross for you, as they'll find out later. You are mourning because you recognize your sin. You say with Peter in Luke 5, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Lord, get away from me. And yet recognizing our sinfulness and our rebelliousness, we come and we bow low and say, Lord, have mercy. And he does. He will. So as we turn today to 
Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 19, through uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, the end of, of the chapter, we are turning to the do's and don'ts of discipleship. We're going to start with the don'ts, and then we'll move to the do's. We have four behaviors under each category. You can follow them along. If you've already studied this, you've already seen them. But look for them again in order that we might know the do's and the don'ts of discipleship, not so that we can earn a place in heaven, but so that we can please our master and follow him anywhere for our good and for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us rightly to understand what your Son, our Savior, has taught in this impressive sermon. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to obey, eyes to see, that we might not only understand the drift of Jesus' argument in this sermon, but we would understand its implications for our lives. This we pray in his name, there being none higher. Amen. The do's and don'ts of discipleship, and beginning with the do uh, with the don'ts. Don't love money. Do not love money. And we're going to read this in sections as we go along in order to save some time, but also to make sure it's really right before us before I give any exposition of it. Matthew chapter 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In this first knot of discipleship, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. I want you to think of it in, in three subparts here. I want you to recognize first that you should not serve or love both God and money in verses 19 through 21. And the first reason is because it's bad for your head. It's bad for your head. It's bad thinking. It's Don't be like the fool in Luke 16 who says, soul, you've got many good things stored up for many years to come. Let's eat and drink, be merry, for we've got all kinds of time now to enjoy all of this. And yet the Lord spoke to him that very night and said, you fool, this very night um, your soul is required of you, and now who will um, enjoy what you have prepared? It's just folly to think that we can serve our possessions and to serve money. It's not good for our heads. It's not good thinking. It's also not good for our hearts. Um, and we see that in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart is the wellspring of life. The heart is that core of us, which is the Latin for heart, core. It's, it's that core of us that determines our thinking, our being, and are doing. And so we need to watch over our hearts with all diligence because from it flow the issues of life. It's not good for your heart to put all your hope in, um, in, in riches. It is not good for your heart. It's not good for my heart either. So don't lay up treasures in heaven. 
Not only you should not, but you will not serve both God and money. Verses 22 and 23. You will not because it will affect your eyes. If you try to learn both God and money, it will affect you in the eyes. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So it's not good for your eyes to try to love God and money. And also, your eyes will affect your life. That what you see, what you concentrate on, what you focus on, you're keeping your eyes on the prize, that'll affect all of our discipleship. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And where if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You won't won't see well, and that'll be a mess. So don't store up for yourselves um, treasures in heaven because you cannot serve both God and money. And that's explicit in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll love the one, despise the other, or be devoted to the one and, des- uh, and despise the other. Um, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, Mark Twain said that that was the clear biblical proof against bigamy, that no one can serve two masters. But I think he had a bad idea of marriage, uh, even if he did have a pretty clever uh, way of, of looking at what marriage is often like. No, our wives are not our bosses, um, but nor are we their bosses. We are their loving heads who would lay down our lives for them. Second knot in, um, in this passage, this wonderful, wonderful passage. And that comes in verse 25. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Will he not also clothe you, O you of little faith? Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't be anxious. Couldn't be clearer. The section starts with that, verse 25, do not be anxious about your life, and it ends with that, verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Well, you wonder, well, why why shouldn't I be anxious? You know, I think it does some good, as one woman once uh, said, proverbially, she said, don't tell me uh, not to be anxious. I found out that it actually is very good. It helps because half of the things that I worry about don't come true. Now, I think she was missing something there. Yeah, you're worrying about stupid stuff. It's not going to happen anyway. But even if you had reason to worry, you have no reason to worry because you've settled the question of who is your master and he will protect you. No, it doesn't mean health and wealth always and prosperity. As Luke will say in his gospel in in chapter uh, 21, not a hair of your head will perish, even though some of you will die. So we'll die. 
but not a hair of our heads will perish. We are under his control. He will see us safely through. Just don't be anxious. All of the things that the world worries about, the Gentiles, the nations in this Jewish context, all of those things, um, God knows you need them. And he's your heavenly father. He cares deeply about you. So don't be anxious. Don't love money. Don't be anxious. And then our third not that we find um, in this passage is um, do not judge in chapter 7 and uh, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't judge people in their cases. You don't know all of the factors that are going in to what they have done. You don't know all the factors that whether they did it or didn't do it. You as a private individual are not commanded to judge, even though if you were on a jury, you would. And a judge uh, does have a civic responsibility to judge. But no, in our private dealings with other individuals and their cases, we're not supposed to judge. We're supposed to judge ourselves. We're supposed to look at the logs in our own eyes, but we're to be very charitable toward other people. And that solves so many conflicts interpersonally. So I hope that we'll do it. There is one more don't. It seems to contradict the don't judge. It's the very next verse, verse um, six. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Don't cast your pearls before swine. If the person that you're talking to is not worthy of the wisdom of your teaching, then you just kind of back off. You don't waste breath on them. Um, and so you don't cast what is holy in front of dogs. Either they have no regard for it. So though we're not to judge individual cases, we are to judge situations and people. To judge at least in the sense of discern. No, we don't judge as though we were the, uh, the king and the one who's making final decisions on people's lives. But we do discern. And that becomes very important for us. How are you doing on the don'ts? If you're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't set your heart on treasures in this world. Certainly don't love money. Don't be anxious, not for anything. Don't judge. Don't cast your pearls before swan. On a positive note, and the negative note is also really important. I don't want to pass over that quickly because Jesus made it very clear in, already in the Sermon on the Mount that he's contrasting the way a disciple of his will live and the way the world will live. He knows that those things are different. And so, hey, it's important to be different. It's important not to engage in behaviors that others around you engage in. It's important not to tell the kinds of jokes that others around you might take, tell. It's important not to be like them. But it's also important to live in a, in a higher plane, in a different way, and do certain things that, by and large, the world does not do. Well, what do I have in mind? I have in mind what Jesus has in mind, is he gives us four clear do commands. The first is ask. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Ask. Ask. This world doesn't ask unless in complete desperation. We like to do our own thing. We like to be the one who is asked, but not the one who's having to ask. But Jesus reminds us as his disciples, recognize your frailty, your feebleness. Your Father who is in heaven is going to be the key to all of your living. So ask him regularly, constantly, give us this day our daily bread. Ask him the other things that we've already studied in this Sermon on the Mount as well in the Lord's Prayer. But you're constantly asking him for his help in all of these things. There's a reason for that. If we're evil and know how to give good things to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? I remember thinking I learned something about God uh, as I was reflecting on something that my father did for me at one point. I was with a bunch of friends. We were coming back from a mission trip in Mexico. We didn't think we would be able to come through Knoxville, Tennessee on our way back to Virginia, but we were able to. And so in the middle of the afternoon on a weekday where my dad is at the bank working away, he, um, he showed up. My mom was already there, but my dad showed up with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken for me and for my friends and just visited with us. I, I don't remember my dad doing that before. I mean, he didn't just take off um, in the middle of the afternoon, but he did it. And if he, being evil, knows how to give good gifts to me, his child, how much more will my Heavenly Father who uh, give what is good to those who ask him? You've probably got a father's story, too. You might want to tell it in your small group, but do ask, do ask, and don't become cynical and refuse to ask. Second, not only ask, but love. That's the one word summary I'm going to give you for these verses, 12 through 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Love. Think, well, I don't remember seeing love anywhere in there. But you've seen love used in so many other passages of Scripture, and that love is summed up in words very much like this. Verse 12 is love your neighbor. And the clearest way you can do that is what would you want your neighbor to do for you? Well, then you do that for them. That is the golden rule. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do it also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the summation of all Old Testament ethics, love. And that is said so many other times in James and in Romans and um, other places where Paul makes it clear that to, when Matthew 22, Jesus will say the whole law can be summed up in this word love, love God and love neighbor. And it is the love God part that's in the next verse. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's not just any, anything goes in the, in the realm of religion. God is a jealous God. He hates idolatry. He hates it for us. It's demeaning to us to think that we would bow down and worship an image of a bull or a calf or that we would worship the sun or the moon or any other created thing. It's demeaning to us. It's misleading to us. That's not who God is. And for us to give our worship and attention to anything less than that being greater than which cannot be conceived is, is not only wrong, it's just 
ludicrous and it's harmful to us. So enter by the narrow gate. There is one way, one truth, one life. No one comes to the Father except through him, Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6. So we follow him on this narrow path, not to enter heaven by our obedience and by our deeds, but rather we're following him. And then whatever he tells us to do, we will do, whether it has to do with love of neighbor or whether it has to do with love of him. He is the one who will define the breadth of the way and for him, it's a narrow way. It's difficult. And there are not a lot of people who follow it. Not in our day, not in the first century, and not ever, really, until heaven, when everyone will be doing that in the new heavens and the new earth. A third do that we come to is beware. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As much as we want to be charitable in our um, discussions with those of other religions and other philosophical worldviews, We've got to hold on to that which is true. And the truth is narrow, as we've just seen in a narrow way. And the truth means that there are those that would bend the truth. And we need to beware of false teachers, false prophets, who dress up in sheep's clothing. We think they're part of the flock, but in fact they're not. And how will we know if they're not? Well, by the content of their teaching and by the effect of their teaching as well. Because you'll see the fruit of their teaching and recognize, aha, that's not a good fruit. That's not a good tree. That fruit's rotten. That fruit's terrible. And so it's bitter. We're not going to follow that. So we know them by their fruit, and we evaluate that fruit by the content of what they're saying, whether it's consistent with Jesus' teaching. Not everyone who says, I'm a Christian, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. No, it's those who actually do the will of the Father that demonstrate outwardly the faith that they hold inwardly. Faith without works is dead, being by itself. So we should expect to have fruit in our lives, whether the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 or the fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5. And by their fruit, we will know them. But we have to beware. We have to be on our game. We cannot be naive. We cannot be, oh, so accepting. Well, everybody's opinion is equal to anybody else's. We have to believe that there's truth and there's falsehood. There are true teachers and there are false teachers, true prophets and false teachers and false prophets. So beware if you're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. A final do that we encounter, and we see it in verse 24 through verse 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The last thing that we should do, according to Jesus in this sermon, if we are going to follow him in discipleship, is hear and obey. Simply to hear does not distinguish us as disciples of the Lord Jesus. To hear and to obey is what distinguishes us as his followers. Just to hear is a dead faith. But to hear and to act on that faith in works, to demonstrate by our behavior that we really do prize Jesus above all other treasure, then that is what pleases him. So hear and obey. James had a different analogy besides the one of the foundation on the sand versus the foundation on the rock. His analogy was you look in your mirror and you see what kind of a person you, what you look like today. You know, oh gosh, I've got this smudge right over here. I, oh well. And then you go on your way, you forget all about it. That is folly. But if you see that you've got a smudge here, man, you wipe it off and then you go on your way. You've got to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Well, those are the do's and the don'ts of discipleship. The don'ts in verses um, chapter 6, 19 through chapter 7, verse 6. The do's in chapter 7, uh, verse 7 through chapter 7, verse 27. And then we come to the conclusion, the last two verses, the end of the sermon. This was the impact that it had on, on those who heard it in the first instance. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. My prayer for all of us today is that having heard the second half of this sermon, even today, having studied it on your own, having seen each one of those do nots, do nots, do nots, and each of those yes, do this, positively do ask, positively do love, positively do beware, positively do hear and obey, having seen all of that, that we will have the same response that they did. We're amazed, astonished at Jesus's authority. He's not telling us as the gurus that we are used to seeing in self-help books, psychologists, psychiatrists, that that's very valuable. I'm so glad for wise psychologists and psychiatrists, for wise um, business consultants, for wise life coaches, for wise people who tell us good things to do. But this is not like that. Those people are saying, when I hear uh, research shows, best practices reveal, this is the way good companies seem to operate, all of them. But it's all hedged. And they change constantly. Every decade, it seems like there's a new mantra, a new way to do it. Or even how you put your baby down. You know, if, as grandparents, perhaps some of you and others as parents, uh, and others of you want to be parents at some point, do you put your baby down for a sleep on their stomachs or on their backs? Well, it's different now than it was when I was raising my babies. And I'm afraid I'm going to forget that. Or then I think, well, no, by the time I have grandchildren, maybe it'll switch back and they'll be back on their backs, not on their floor. It's good to follow the prevailing advice. But Jesus is not giving advice. Jesus is giving commands. This is the way you are to do it. He spoke as one with authority because he declared himself to be the son of David. He declared himself to be the son of God. If you say you are his disciple, do you follow him or do you take his teaching under advisement? You follow him. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, 
in a way that's very consistent with all that we have seen in the passage that we're looking at today. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If Jesus is your Lord, then I urge you, I admonish you, and I hope that you will urge me and admonish me, for I am not speaking with any authority that I possess in my own other than the authority of this text that we just read and that I might rightly explain it to you or pass it on to you. But urge me, encourage me, do not love money, David. Do not be anxious, David. You know so much more than these Gentiles who don't know that there's a loving Heavenly Father that's going to watch out for them. You've got a purpose in your life and you've got a peace in your life that they don't have. So don't be anxious. Don't judge them. Don't judge them. You can't read their hearts. You better recognize that. You can't read their hearts. So don't judge them, David. And don't cast your pearls before swine. Do be discerning and don't go on and on when people have tuned you out already. Do ask, seek, knock. Make yourself vulnerable before your Father in heaven and plead with him as a child because he is good. If even our earthly fathers knew how to treat us well, surely he does even more. And so do, in fact, ask. Don't become cynical. Ask. Do love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ask yourself, what would my neighbor, what would I want my neighbor to do for me? Then then I'll do that for my neighbor. Do beware. That sign that says beware of dog, thin ice, whatever, beware. Be cautious. We live in a fallen and broken world. Half the things that people say that they're worried about are only half of the things that we should be worried about. We have so many things to be worried about. I love how John Calvin and his institutes tells those that are inclined to be worried because they don't trust in the providence of God. He, he eggs them on. He says, oh, you, you haven't even thought of everything. What about this? Did you think that you could walk outside and a tile would fall from the, um, and the narrow cobbled streets of Geneva could fall and hit, on, hit you on the head? Or a horse could get away from somebody and run you over. You didn't have time to get out of the way. Or all, And he goes on, all these things that could go wrong. You think that's not comforting. That's not the way a preacher ought to preach to his congregation. It absolutely is the way because he's reminding them that there's no way to protect ourselves in this broken and fallen world. But God protects us. He watches over us so well that not a hair can fall from our heads. So it is altogether appropriate that we, um, we trust in him. Do hear and obey. These are the things that we shouldn't do and the things that we should do. These are the do's and don'ts of discipleship. We are disciples first, and then we live like it. Not we have to live this way in order to become worthy of being disciples. None of us is worthy to be a disciple. As as Simon Peter said so clearly, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. But whom, whom the Lord Jesus has chosen, he will cleanse and he will empower. We now know that the Holy Spirit has come and that it is in um, abiding in him, being filled with the Spirit, that we can follow the Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much good teaching here. Each one of these do's and don'ts could have been a sermon in and of itself. Eight sermons, not one teaching. And And yet, many of us are already familiar with them and what we need is a review. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would put your finger upon that part in our own souls that needs some restoration, 
that needs some correction, perhaps needs some warning, and help each of us follow you in that particular area. It's going to be different for each of us. The meaning of this text is absolutely clear to everyone, and it is the same for every one of us. But the significance of this text will be different for us, given our different backgrounds and our different temptations, our different sins. So, Lord, meet us at our point of need and do convict us in one particular area or encourage us in one particular area. And then we pray that you would help us act on that thing. Show us the change in behavior that should come because of that verse, that thought, that command. This we ask in Jesus' name, who is our authority, for he is your son, our Lord. Amen. Thank you all. Have a great week.